Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Romans chapter 7 through 16. Now, before we start, Taylor, you mentioned something a few minutes ago to me that I hadn't realized that this is this is the Come Follow Me lesson with the most chapters this year, is what you mentioned. Now, I think that's true. I actually looked at Revelation. There might be even more there, but we've got 10 chapters that we're going to be dealing with. Before we dive into chapter 7, let me just ask a simple question. Have you ever woken up in the morning and thought to yourself, oh, I have, I have too much to do. I have too much that's being expected of me. I, I, I'm involved in too many things, and none of them is getting my my full treatment. I, I'm doing a million things poorly, or feeling a little disjointed in your relationships with loved ones or with heaven, feeling like you're starting to lose grip on hope and feeling anxious or anxiety increasing. This section of of chapters from Paul's Epistle to the Romans is going to help people who struggle with these kinds of things to let go of some of the the tension and some of the anxiety and some of the feelings of of scrupulosity or or spiritual perfectionism. Or I'm not good enough. For I'll never be good enough. That that's actually more important. Like I have so much to do, and I just will never be able to get it done. And Paul deals with this because he had people in his time who felt overwhelmed with feeling like they had to do everything for God, and they often forgot that God had already done everything for them. Yeah. So so today's lesson, as we go through these scriptures, we would hope that you keep a prayer, that we all keep a prayer in our heart that we can find ways to not just talk about having more faith in the Savior and more hope in his power and in his mercy and in his grace, but ideas, specific inspiration for how to actually embrace more of that faith in the Savior and and feel of his loving arms around us as we move forward on the covenant path. So we begin in chapter seven, with Paul using one of these these uh, literary techniques that he is very famous for, which is asking these rhetorical questions or using some object lessons, usually based in an understanding of the Old Testament, the law of Moses or Old Testament characters and stories to then repurpose them, repackage them in a New Testament setting with Christ being at the center to say, see, the Savior fulfills all of those those stories and those prophecies and those revelations that you've you've known and loved for generations as faithful uh, Jews. And this is one of the reasons why Paul is so crucial. If you consider this, without Paul, we might wonder how well Christianity may have spread early in the Roman Empire. And one of the great things that we get from Paul is this inspiration of helping us to see Jesus in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament does not always just forefront and say, hey, we're talking about Jesus here. And Paul helps remind us 
how we should be reading these stories. So we start in verse 1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. There's the, the parenthetical statement to say, I, I'm looking at you, good practicing Jews who have been born and raised on the law of Moses, the Torah, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So he's using this Old Testament law of marriage that as long as he's alive, she is bound to him in marriage. But the moment he dies, there is no more marriage for her. She is now free to go and be married again. And he's using this beautiful analogy to say, the law of Moses used to be your spouse. You were, you were covenantally bound to it. But guess what? That law is now fulfilled or put his way, now dead in Christ so that you can live in Christ. Don't live your life bound down by these long lists of expectations that others from the past have put upon you. Find freedom in this new covenantal connection and this new relationship with Jesus Christ is, is his opening invitation here in chapter 7. And remember, we have to read these in context. So if we look at verse 4, we'll talk about how it could be potentially misread and likely what Paul is trying to convey here. He says, wherefore, concluding this metaphor of the marriage, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, Paul is not saying you need to be physically dead right now, but he is saying these laws that were these guideposts for you, these were a schoolmaster to Christ, Christ is now here. You can now go directly to him. Let's use another metaphor. You're familiar with the Book of Mormon, and we have the story of the tree of life with the rod of iron, and the iron rod. So imagine the iron rod being the word of God, all these laws that take you to the tree where the fruit of the atonement is available. But once you're at the tree, there's nowhere in that story it tells you drop the fruit of the tree, abandon the tree, and go back and just hang out at the iron rod. And I see this is what uh, Paul is trying to say. The iron rod was super helpful. Now you're at the tree. Stay there. Stay committed to Jesus. Don't get lost in all these past words. So beginning in verse 5, this is one of those footnotes that ought to be marked uh, for clarity. Chapter 7, verse 5, footnote A, if you go down to the bottom of your scripture page, it says, Joseph, the translation, Romans 7, 5 through 27. Clear at the back here in the appendix. It's one of the longest of the Joseph Smith translation editions in the Bible. And it's because there are so many things in this little set of verses coming up that are easy to, to read in a very negative uh, context or connotation. It, it makes Paul, quite frankly, sound, sound terrible, sound very wicked almost, the way it's worded in the King James Version. And so it's, it's beautiful to read this whole section in the Joseph Smith translation to see how he compares Paul's life previously 
under the law of Moses compared to his life now under the Savior Jesus Christ and under the law of the gospel or the, the higher law that the Savior has fulfilled from that Old Testament and all of the upgrades that he gave to his law. And the basic overview, so we don't get totally lost in Paul's words, which anciently would have been really meaningful to his audience, we sometimes can get a little lost, is just that Christ liberates us, that our past lives are refreshed through him. So as you're reading Paul, just listen for that. Where is he talking about what his past life was like before he encountered Jesus, and what is his life now, now that he has Jesus? And back to what Tyler mentioned earlier, every day we wake up and there's challenges of things that we have to deal with. And we have to ask ourselves, can I remember song of redeeming love? There have been moments in our lives we have fully encountered Jesus. How can we experience that again? What can we do today to fill that hope and joy so we can endure to the end, even though life is difficult on a daily or weekly basis? Another thing that Paul does here is he, he'll often teach a principle or he'll try to give, notice his intent with writing these letters isn't to say, okay, I'm going to teach you the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's doing with these letters. He's giving corrective feedback as needed. He's giving encouragement. He's teaching little vignettes about the gospel, but he's not trying to give them the fullness of the gospel in one letter to one location, in this case, to Rome. So he's he's giving them this, this insight about the law, but then he'll often make sure that they don't swing the pendulum too far to the other opposite extreme. So he'll do that using different techniques. The one he prefers most often, it seems, is by asking again these rhetorical questions. So after having given this corrective, listen to his question to make sure they don't swing the pendulum too far. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law bad? Should I, should I now be denigrating the law and speaking really evil of the law? His answer, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. He's saying, look, the, the law makes me aware of all of the things I can do wrong, but the law itself isn't sin. It's just making me aware of all the sin. So stop looking to the law to save you, because quite frankly, the law only makes you guilty when you break it. Look heavenward. Look unto Christ. Look to God for your salvation. Look heavenward for the mercy and the grace. You don't look to the law for the mercy. The law delivers justice and judgment. And remember the word law in the Old Testament means instruction. So again, think about instructions can lead us to Jesus Christ, but the instructions themselves don't save us. Once you've arrived at the tree, once you arrived at Jesus, you stay there. The instructions had played their important role. You don't look back on them negatively. You see them as this school help that had led you along, just like the uh, rod of iron or the iron rod. And this is what Paul is trying to deal with is, how do I teach people the value of that experience, but once you have now reached Jesus or reached the tree, it's okay to no longer be bound by those things that you had in the past. So now, notice we taught the doctrine we tried to make sure that we didn't over swing that pendulum to the other extreme. 
And then he comes back to this middle ground and let's make sure we don't swing it back too far this other way. He's, he's zeroing in on this sweet spot here in the middle. Look at verse uh, 12. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So don't, don't badmouth them. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. And now it starts to get really uh, difficult, really complex. So if you look in the Joseph Smith translation for this next section, instead of reading things like in verse 15, it says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. It, it makes the whole sound like... <laughs> I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, and I don't do it. And I know what I'm not supposed to do, and that's what I do all the time. It's a little more nuanced than that. It's a little more complex than that. And as a good teacher, he's making very clear instruction. He's using good, clear metaphors. When I was reading this again recently, I thought about this phrase many of us are familiar with. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And if we had Paul here today, we might... He might say, yeah, that's what I was trying to get across, that I have my spirit desires to do what's right, but sometimes in my fallen nature, I struggle and I don't do what I should. So that's one way of looking at this. And that comes out in the Joseph Smith translation, this idea that when I was under the law, that's how I felt. I, I never felt good enough. I never arrived. There was always more I could have and should have done. And the expectation list was always bigger than my energy source and my capacity. And so I was always falling behind. But in Christ, we can let go of that, that impossible uh, expectation list, and we can move forward. Um, I love how he says in verse uh, 23, uh, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So he creates this, this metaphor for us of, it's this battle, this internal war that is being waged to try to get this, this uh, soul of ours to do and to think and to feel and to desire the things that God wants us to, to think and feel and desire and do. And yet it's, the reality, I can't do it. I am not good enough. I can't do this. That's why I need a savior. That's where Jesus Christ comes in because he can do it. He did it with himself and he has an infinite abundance of that goodness to help me with my battle, with my list of expectations, with my to-do list, with my uh, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual uh, struggles. He's got enough and to spare if I'll stop focusing outward on my problems and downward on my opposition and instead turn my gaze heavenward and look unto him in every thought. It, it sounds like what we're talking about, Tyler, here is that it's we have to get to the point of abandoning our personal quest to save ourselves. In this next phrase we see in verse 24, we also see Nephi using very similar phraseology. Let's read it and then talk just a bit about how we too 
can let go of having to try to feel like we need to do everything and save ourselves. And instead, when we finally get to that deep moment of humility, where we realize we cannot save ourselves, we realize there is salvation. And all I need to do is reach out and accept Jesus. And by the way, this is the Enos story as well, who prays all night and then realizes, I have Jesus and he can do all things. And what do we hear from Paul and from Nephi when they recognize their own fallen nature? Verse 24, oh, wretched man that I am. And I've had moments in my life where I have seen the reality of my own incapacity. And yet the honesty of that moment allows me to honestly accept Jesus, who then empowers me to live in him, to accomplish the things that he can empower me to do, instead of me doing it all on my own. Which now brings us to the unfolding of how Paul overcomes this, this wretched man feeling, this depths of despair, this, I'm, I don't feel very good, I don't feel worthy, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be good enough kind of a feeling, it is followed up by Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, ironically, in the front of my scriptures, I have a little uh, label that says, on a bad day, read. And I've got five chapters. I'm not going to tell you what they all are because it's better if you come up with your own. But I will tell you what two of those five chapters are. One of them is 2 Nephi 4. And one of them is Romans chapter 8. They are exactly the same kind of an idea of how to shore up my faith, how to reassure me in my hope in Christ. I'm just going to say it. My opinion, Romans chapter 8 was Paul's finest moment in all of his epistles, in all of his missionary journeys. Romans 8 is my favorite. And it's back to, we mentioned this before, the two sides of a coin. One side of the coin is we all have fallen nature. We've talked about Paul addressing it head on, the wretchedness that we live in a fallen world. It is wretched at times. Nephi experiences it. But what's the opposite of that? What's on the backside of that coin? The hope that we are children of God. We have his spirit to be with us, and therefore we are not left permanently alone in the wretched state if we choose the free gift that he has offered of his son, and we are then involved in that covenantal nurturing relationship, which is why if you're having a tough day, perhaps we stop focusing on the wretchedness of life and we turn the coin over and say, there is hope, there is goodness, there is a larger reality that God is in charge of that I can participate in right now. And one of the things that helps to turn that coin over as you're talking through this, Taylor, is to count your blessings. That's what Nephi does in 2nd Nephi 4. That's what's going to happen here is this acknowledgement of, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm looking at the wrong thing. I'm putting my focus on the wrong thing. I need to keep my focus fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, on the solution, not the problems. And all of a sudden, the problems don't go away, but they become a lot more bearable. They become a lot more manageable as we move forward. So, Notice how he opens chapter 8. And remember, these chapter breaks, they're artificial. They're added later on. So he's just gotten through talking about his struggles with his, with his mortality and with his imperfection. And he follows it up with, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in 
Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Did you see that? There's no condemnation. Yes, you're imperfect. Yes, you have weakness. You're filled with flaws. So are we. Everybody is. But there's no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. That word in signifies something. That, that's code for something. It's not just this fancy imagery of being in Christ. It's covenantal. It's a, connectin, a, a connecting point with the Lord so that you can tap into his power, his mercy, his grace, his knowledge, his truth, everything that he has to offer. It is so powerful. If we only pay attention, to use a metaphor again, to one side of the coin, and we only participate or pay attention to the wretched state of our lives, we are not acknowledging, we are refusing the other side of the coin, that fuller truth of reality. And that, that phrase of being in Christ, his infinite atonement, when you're in there, there is nothing that can then hurt you permanently. It's interesting. Now, we all get pains and wounded, but when you're with Christ and in that relationship, there is not anything in this life that will do any permanent damage to you. What was it that uh, President uh, Howard W. Hunter used to say, when you, when you have the Savior at the center of your life, Nothing will permanently go wrong. That's a powerful concept. There will be things going wrong, like you said, but nothing will permanently go wrong. Look at, look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And in our world today, we could probably add a whole bunch of additional things to that list of what we're free from. We can literally become freed more every day from the anxieties and the ills of our world and the anxieties that, that come from, from self-loathing or too much pressure for me to perform to everybody else's expectations, but rather stop focusing there and figure out what the expectations, the law from God is for me. Now, Verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Right, so it's a conscious choice. I'm no longer allowing my life to be dictated by the fallen nature, but instead I am being guided by the example of Jesus Christ. And notice the agency here. It is a choice. Is it easy to fall into the patterns of fallen nature? Yes. But ultimately, we have a choice to choose. Will we choose to practice following the footsteps of Jesus or the footsteps of fallen nature? And with practice, we get better and better at staying aligned with Jesus. So some of you are probably thinking to yourself at this point, all right, I, I, I'm, I'm in, I, I agree, but how do I do this? The, the practical aspects of discipleship are often overlooked and it leaves us even more frustrated because now we see more clearly what we're trying to get to and we can't see the path of how to do it. So look at what he does here. Verse 5, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So one of the how techniques here would be pause. When you feel that anxiety, when you feel that pressure, that stress building that 
that mounting uh, perfectionism coming into your heart, increasing your blood pressure, pause for a moment, tap the brakes and say, wait a minute, what is it that I'm really getting nervous about here? Are they physical things or are they things of the spirit, things of eternity? And even just to, to pause and say a prayer, Heavenly Father, help me make sense of these things that are bothering me and help me know how to order them. Because the fact is, you will probably, if you wrote out all the things that are bothering you and all the things you're trying to work on and accomplish that day, chances are you don't have enough time and energy and money and resources to do all of that. So then you take that list to the Lord and you mind the things of the Spirit and say, Heavenly Father, help me know, what do I keep and what do I cut today? I can't do it all. And I don't want to live my life filled with anxiety about what I'm not doing. I want to feel the freedom that comes in Christ, in relationship with the Savior, in covenantal relationship with Him, to say, I want to be on thy errands today. I don't want to just do the things that I want to do. What of all of these or others that I don't even have on my list yet would thou have me do? Let him shape your day through the help of the Spirit and see if that helps overcome some of these, these stresses and anxieties that we normally face. This idea of pausing, again, that's using your agency. Instead of you being acted upon by life circumstances, you choosing to act. And somebody once taught me this interesting principle that aligns with this. It's called the 10-10-10 rule. I guess I could write it up. But uh, you pause, right? Use your agency and stop and say, you count to 10. You give yourself 10 seconds just to kind of slow down. And then you say, in 10 minutes, is this still going to be a problem? In 10 weeks, is this still going to be a problem? How about in 10 years? And sometimes we just have to give ourselves some perspective that there are things we're dealing with in our lives. We just pause and say, is this an issue that really is going to be a problem in 10 minutes or 10 weeks or even 10 years? And if it is, you might say, okay, that is probably a higher priority thing. If this is, if this is going to be a problem I might have to deal with for a while, that's going to be a high priority thing. And I need to spend some more time with Jesus getting strengthened to endure to the end on this one. But there's some issue that's only going to last for 10 minutes. I think most of us can handle that. And so the invitation here is to not let our agency be compromised because of the realities of life, but to use the agency, this God-given gift, to act for ourselves and in that process, find ourselves more aligned with Jesus and hence finding the joy that has been designed for this life. I love that. Now look at verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Mm. Such a powerful little verse here in chapter 8. Uh, this idea, don't focus on the things of the flesh, because it just leads to death. Focus on those, those things of the Spirit. And now let me just point out here, this, I, like I've said before, this is my favorite chapter of Paul. I, I love Romans 8 because it is just dripping with doctrine surrounding hope and faith in Christ and liberating and peace-giving kinds of doctrines. So we could take hours just going verse by verse through chapter 8. D didn't we have a friend we were talking to recently? 
he went to a conference with a really phenomenal New Testament scholar, a very faithful Christian. It was a four-day conference all on Romans chapter 8. Now, I don't think any of us need to go give four days away to Romans 8. Although that might be kind of interesting. What we're trying to convey here is that what we do in these lessons is try to give you a taste of what God's trying to invite us to, to experience and invite you to go spend the time to dig more deeply. Exactly. So you're going to see this repeat pattern through this first column, verse 7 through 13. He's going to repeat this idea of don't focus on the flesh, don't focus on the things of this earth, focus on heaven and the things of the spirit. And then you get over to verse 16. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, we need to pause there. This is that there's so much theological significance in that one verse that the spirit is going to come and bear witness to our spirit directly. And the spirit doesn't usually appear to people in a, in a spirit form that you can see with, with your eyes or hear with your eardrums. But when the spirit comes, pure intelligence, pure truth is transmitted spirit to spirit. And what is the most important truth that the Holy Spirit is going to teach you, it's your identity. If you know who you really are, then all the rest is going to be details. You're going to figure out everything else. If you truly understand your identity, and what is it? You are a child of God. It's it's the most profound identity possible. The, the ruler of the universe, creator of worlds without number, the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are, he's not just your creator because we can create things, we can fashion, we can build things with our hands, but there's a big difference between something I've created and something that I've helped to procreate. Something that is a child of mine, that individual has life it has part of my being inside of that child. It has the capacity to grow up and to become more like me. Now, you take that in this context of verse 16, and Paul's teaching these Roman saints who, by the way, happen to be living in a very decadent society there in Rome in the first century, filled with idolatry and adultery and all kinds of sins that are being thrust upon them. And he's reminding them, you're a child of God. And this is really stunning doctrine. Now, you may be very familiar with this idea, but in the ancient Roman world, most Romans did not run around saying, I'm a child of Zeus or of Shara or of somebody else. That was not very common. Some people did, and usually people were trying to get political authority to try to claim, like Alexander the Great in the Greeks. He believed that he was a, a child of one of the gods. So it was not a very common belief. So imagine how thrilling it was for these early Christians to realize that we know something that all these other people are missing, and it's about our identity. Now, it doesn't make anybody who happens to recognize that identity better, but that recognition of identity should be liberating and help put things in perspective that we're not simply here to suffer and die which ties in perfectly with President Nelson's three primary identities that he gave to all of us. You are a child of God, a 
child of the covenant, a disciple of Christ. Outside of that, all the rest is just details. Look at verse 17. And if you're children of God, then you're also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Are you sensing some of the theological underpinnings of Paul's doctrine here of God the Father, his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, in verse 16 and 17, and how they're all working together. God the Father willing to make you an heir of all that he has, even a joint heir with Christ, his only perfect Son. I don't know about you, but I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, and, and I'm confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me, because why would an infinite being who has so much power and so much perfection and so much capacity be so infinitely interested in one so insignificant and small as I? I? I can never repay him. I'm an unprofitable servant. I'll never catch up. I have nothing really to offer him. And yet, he still continually comes to try to work with me in my imperfection, in my sin, in my weakness, he keeps reaching out. He wants to share what he has, which is so counter to everything you see in the rest of the world's history of a king and a prince and that prince wanting to get rid of all competition so that the kingdom would fall only to him and the fewer people to share with, the better. It's the total opposite with Jesus Christ and with Heavenly Father. They want to give away their abundance. It doesn't make them poorer. It actually makes them joyful and happy. It is their work and their glory. It's interesting you use that word joy. It's the word I've been thinking about as we're reading through these verses, that God is a being of joy, and it expands his joy to help other people have that joy. So I grew up as a member of the church, and I'd heard all this stuff growing up. I had very good teachers. I think I wasn't always paying attention, but I had good teachers, so it's not the teacher's fault. I remember being in the missionary training center in Provo, about to head out of my mission, and got talking with one of the teachers there, and it was this message finally sunk in. I had never paid attention to the fact that what God is trying to do is to help all of us become just like him and fully inherit everything he has. Somehow I'd missed that. I was 19 years old and like, Wait, what? Wait, what is the promise? It's not just like eternal life, but like we are going to become like God and share in everything. I just remember like floating through the hallways of the Missionary Training Center for days after that with finally realizing these very powerful, simple truths that are, I think, pretty plainly taught. But we just want to reiterate that whoever you are, wherever you are, you are a child of God and you have full capacity to become like him. It doesn't matter what the world or anybody thinks of you right now in your current state. You will become like him if you continue to choose him. Now hold that thought, because there's a caveat here. We only read the first half of verse 17. That's right. There's a second half. So after talking about being an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ, it says, if so be. If you circle that word, if, it means that there's a condition attached to being a joint heir with Christ. If so be that we suffer 
with him that we may also be glorified together. If you're experiencing suffering, instead of shaking your fist at heaven, saying, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. I deserve better. Look at all the things I've tried to do right and look at the callings I've had and look at the service projects I participated in. Look at my tithing slips. Instead of taking that route, what if we gloried in the fact that we're experiencing some tribulation and instead of turning heavenward with a scowl, bow our head in gratitude and meekness and humility and say, Heavenly Father, help me learn what I need to learn from this tribulation, from this suffering. Help me to become more like the Savior Jesus Christ through this shaping experience that I'm wrestling with right now. So in English, there's these two different prepositions, and I think this is what you're getting at, Tyler. You can narrate your suffering as, this is happening to me, and that is very non-agency, right? Something's happening to me, I have no agency. Or this is happening for me. Now your agency is alive. And what I hear being taught by Paul is this one. There are things that are happening for us where our agency is invited to be magnified. Sure, it hurts. Life is hard. But in that process of growth, we become more like God. We cannot become like God without suffering. And I got to tell you, Tyler, I've known from, from my personal experience, I learned this very painfully. And for a long time, I didn't want to ever share it in church because I thought it's just a tough doctrine that we have to be willing to endure suffering for the value of what it does to teach us how to love and empathize and to be more like God. Well, that's absolutely true. And Paul goes on to qualify that suffering in verse 18. Notice how he says, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's basically saying, you can't even compare the badness of this moment with the goodness of eternity as a joint heir with Christ. They're, they're, They're not even in the same league together. And so, if you keep that perspective, then you're able to stay in a covenantal relationship with God instead of being offended that he's not making your life easier or pain-free or making it just prosperous. Keep in mind, as a child of God, he loves you more than he loves your sense of ease and contentment. We did not come down to this earth in order to experience a life of entertainment and pleasure and ease and peace and prosperity 100% of the time. That is not why we're here. We're here to be tried and tested and proven in all things and to learn from our own experiences the differences between what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And instead of, instead of taking the poor me, which is the customer service mentality of life, always upset because I didn't get what I wanted, how I wanted it, and when I wanted it. But to say, Lord, what am I to learn from this? How can I draw closer to thee? How can I rejoice in this struggle, in this suffering, rather than just getting through it? It's kind of the difference between going through trials 
versus growing through trials. Time's going to pass. Most of the trials are going to pass. They're going to go away eventually. But am, am I going to be different on their going away? Or am I going to become bitter? Better or bitter because of having passed through that trial? Maybe we would be benefited to, to pray more often to have the Lord help us learn how to grow through trials rather than just hunker down and, and white knuckle our way through them knowing they're eventually going to pass. Now, skipping a whole bunch more verses, and I feel like I need to repent for doing that. Let's go down to verse 24. For we are saved by hope. And then he clarifies. We're, we're, we're going to be saved from all these struggles because of our hope, and that hope is in Christ, of course. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? It's that idea of if you can see it, if it's right here and it's in front of you, then you don't need hope. The real test of your, of your discipleship in this context is, can you still hold on with the fingernails of faith to that rope of hope, if you will, even though you can't see the end from the beginning? And it says in verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. We're waiting on the Lord, and now one of the most incredible verses of all Scripture, in my opinion. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There have been many, many times in my life where in a, in a moment of need, I've gone to the Lord in prayer and I've wanted to talk through what I'm experiencing and, and how I'm feeling. And there have been a, a handful of times in those experiences where I've had the impression, shh, don't talk. But I'm a fixer. I'm, I'm proactive, right? I want to I explain this. And so I start trying to explain it. And then that feeling of, shh, don't talk. Some of the most profound prayers I've experienced in life have had very, very few words associated with them. They've consisted more of a feeling of kneeling at the knees of the God of the universe who happens to be our Father and feeling that connection with Him and relying on this promise that the Spirit is now making intercession, these groanings, these sighings of the Spirit, communicating things that words can never touch. I, I can't come up with the words to describe that heartache or that frustration or that depth of, of emotion that's going on. But what a profound experience when prayer becomes this, this beautiful connecting point between parent and child this heavenly father and me who's struggling so much. And it doesn't always have to be something that can be written out or explained in words. In fact, the most powerful experiences can't be explained in words. It's amazing how God sometimes just sits with us and he fully understands who we are, even if we can't fully express it. 
that's powerful. <clears throat> He's God is the best listener in all the universe. And he's always willing to listen. And he's always willing to just sit with you and mourn with you and comfort you. He's the essence of all those, those baptismal covenants that we've been asked to make. Well, he embodies them all. There's nowhere he would rather have you weeping than at his feet. There's nowhere he'd rather have you upset and angry and sharing your frustrations than at his feet. He can take it. He's, he's infinitely capable of taking whatever it is that we have to bring to him. Look at verse 27. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Did you catch that? We know that all things, that wasn't just all pleasures, all successes, all wonderful experiences. It's all things work together for good to them that love God. So if you're struggling with spiritual perfectionism, if you're struggling feeling like you're never gonna catch up with what you need to do, refocus here, love God, and then let him be yoked with you. Let the Savior, in this context, take his yoke upon you as you now move forward to face those struggles and realize, even if I experience what seems to the world's perspective to be a failure today, it's not a failure. I didn't lose because I'm connected with Christ. I'm focused on Heavenly Father. And we move forward. Look at uh, look down at verse thirty one. What then shall or what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Joseph Smith changed the word to who can prevail against us. What a powerful question! You make your lists, you make your frustrations, list them out, and if God be for us, who and what can possibly prevail against us? And the answer from Paul's perspective is nothing. And now we finish off chapter 8 with these last few verses. Let's jump down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to get in and wedge you away from Christ? All of those things on your to-do list, all of those frustrations, those anxieties, those struggling relationships, pick any combination or all of them together. Is that a big enough wedge to get between you and the Savior Jesus Christ? And unfortunately, for for some people today, they allow those things to actually get in and separate them from their covenant with Christ. And they say, it's just too hard. I can't do it anymore. I'm not even going to try anymore because it's just making me feel guilty. I don't like going to church because I feel like I'm never going to be good enough and I feel judged and I don't feel like I'm having spiritual experiences. Well, here's Paul saying, nothing will separate you unless you allow it. Look at this list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. <laughs> None of those things are bigger and more powerful than the Savior. 
his infinite atonement is, well, infinite. And none of those things are. So we can't let them become these separating points. And now we finish with, once again, two of the most powerful verses of all scripture, in my opinion. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're noticing, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Remember that one back in uh, our, our famous uh, John chapter 3, verse 16? Here's Paul re-echoing that exact same sentiment that how do we know that Heavenly Father loves us? How do we know that as a child of God, he actually loves me? Because he sent Christ Jesus, his son, to save me. That's how I know God loves me. And nothing can separate me from that. I can separate myself from those things, but no external force can force that upon us. So as we now turn the page over to chapter 9, this is a section that is just, again, dripping with Old Testament doctrines that Paul is going to be repackaging and repurposing for his audience in the first century. So he takes him into the Old Testament to talk about Abraham and the original covenant. Then he talks about Jacob and Esau. Then he takes them over in verse 24, 25, 26 to the story of Hosea and Gomer and this group in ancient Israel that is no longer considered my people. But then verse 26, those who were not my people now are called the children of the living God. Again, that's a big deal in Rome because you're surrounded by a whole bunch of dead gods, a whole bunch of idols and, and temples to dead gods, but you're children of a living God and nobody's a child of these dead gods. So that's significant as he's pulling all of this Old Testament symbolism, including Moses, into chapter 9. So we've talked before about two covenant types. One is the unconditional covenant. We see this in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants where God himself declares the promises and he is the one who will fulfill them. So we talk about election. Some people call it predestination. God has already decided that he's going to make salvation available to everybody and he will do his work. Now, there's a conditional covenant. We first see this really represented at the time of Moses with the Ten Commandments and actually later the 613 laws of Moses. There was a bunch of conditions that people needed to show covenantal love and loyalty so that they could maintain their access to God's unconditioned love and promises. So you're in this chapter, look for where is God acting in covenantal fidelity and faithfulness and where do we see humans either accepting what he offers or rejecting it and what the consequences are. So these words are also important in covenantal context. Now, when you see them in scriptures, you might remind yourself there often is a covenantal meaning to these words. Mercy, love, faith, belief. These words often are saturated with this covenantal meaning about the mercy is God's doing all these things for us because he loves us. He is faithful in the covenant. Faith often means you trust God and he is trustworthy in the relationship. 
And the belief often can mean that you are choosing to be connected in that mutual obligation of a covenantal relationship. So as you read through these chapters, look for those themes as Paul is retelling these Old Testament stories and upgrading the understanding for his New Testament audience. So you notice here towards the end of chapter 9, he now talks about Isaiah in verse 27, 29, then in verse 31, but Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, let me just give you a really quick contrast to that. Because in the Book of Mormon, they come out of the same dispensation as Moses. Uh, Lehi left under Moses' dispensation. They have the law of Moses. But listen to their understanding because of the added prophetic insights that were given to them by Nephi and Jacob and Lehi and King Benjamin and others. Listen to the way it describes this. I'm in Alma 25, verse 15 and 16. Yea, they did keep the law of Moses, for it was expedient that they should keep the law of Moses as yet, for it was not all fulfilled. And it wouldn't be fulfilled for these people, because this is 77, 80 BC, until Christ comes. It says, but notwithstanding the law of Moses, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses was a type of his coming, and believing that they must keep those outward performances until the time that he should be revealed unto them. Now, they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses, but the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ, and thus they did retain a hope through faith unto eternal salvation, relying upon the spirit of prophecy which spake of those things to come. It's this hope. They didn't see it, but they're holding on to it. Are you seeing how beautifully these scriptures can be read as one? The writings of Paul combined with restoration scripture to give us a more complete and full view of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I love it. I love how these scriptures speak together and and collaborate the message that it's only in Christ. And the law of Moses, nor the law of tithing, nor the law of consecration are going to save us. All of those laws simply point our souls to Christ and help us to connect with him more fully. Which brings us to chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. By the way, what a wonderful prayer to offer probably more often than most of us do, which is to ask of Heavenly Father for that which we most desire, which is salvation not just for ourselves, but for our people, our loved ones, our families, our friends. And I love that he puts that out there, that it's his heart desire, heart's desire and prayer that they might be saved. And then look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's an interesting word, the word end. We often think, well, that's, we've reached a conclusion, but sometimes the Greek can also mean the purpose or kind of the end goal. So you read it multiple ways, and rereading it, you say, for Christ is the purpose, or the law points to him. Remember, we talked about the iron rod. 
it leads you to the tree. It's not simply to stand there on the path holding on the rod, it's to take you to Jesus. So that's what this verse is saying here. So now we come over to verse 9, and it says, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is a, a verse that often gets used in isolation of other verses written by Paul to say, see, all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ, and then you're going to be saved. We don't disagree with verse 9. We don't need to Bible bash with people about verse 9. We love verse 9, and we see it in its context and in its flow of everything else that Paul is teaching here, that that is a necessary step. The, the Greek word there to confess, homo logeo, it's that idea to assent, to covenant, to promise. We, we don't just confess, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, we actually covenant, we make a promise with, with God that Jesus is going to be the focus of our life. It's powerful. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. These, these covenants are made with the mouth. And I do love the simplicity that Paul's trying to say, yes, there are all sorts of things that you need to be doing, but let's just step way back and just get to the very fundamentals. You begin by declaring that you recognize Jesus as your Savior. And if we think about the first principles and ordinance of the gospel are faith, and he is expressing in a very powerful way, this is what faith is about. And if you have faith, you will repent and you prove repentance by getting baptized, and you prove baptism by receiving the Holy Ghost, and then you continue to do that every week at sacrament. So Paul is speaking very clearly about core initial principles of the gospel, but not in isolation from other things that we need to be doing to be on that ongoing covenant path. Yeah, let's read all of the scriptures that Paul produced and all of the scriptures that talk about Paul back in Acts, and you're going to see him doing all kinds of things associated with all of the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, not just a, a verbal uh, confession with the mouth. Verse 12, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. In other words, God is no respecter of persons. He's not up in heaven saying, look at that poor pagan who's just trying to become converted into Christianity. He's nothing compared to this Jewish convert over here who has 25 generations of faithfulness to the law. All are alike unto God. There is no difference to him. And in verse 13, it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, let's pause here. I'm actually going to do the opposite of this particular list. Because what happens here is he says, he, he starts out by saying, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But now notice this, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? So before I can call, I have to believe. That will lead me to call, which will result in a condition of being saved. And it says, 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So before I can believe, I have to have heard about him. And how shall they hear without a preacher? So this preacher has to say things that I can hear, and how shall they preach except they shall be sent, as it is written. This is an amazing thing that when we find the Savior, when we find peace in Christ, it's not a terminal end unto itself. It's a means to now spread it to others. Once you have that peace in Christ, then he calls you, he sends you. The word here for apostle is to be sent, one who is sent. You go out to preach these good things so that people can hear you, so they can believe, so they can call on God, so they can be saved. It's this beautiful interchange of how God spreads the gospel in each of the dispensations through human testimony, through fulfilling these, the, the ultimate fulfillment of love your neighbor as yourself. That means you go and you try to help them find the peace, find the love, find the joy that the Savior has given to you. So as we move into chapter 11, again, we see Paul using this rhetorical device. He's trying to simply, essentially provide his bona fides or his credentials for why he's teaching what he is teaching. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now, because Paul has spent quite a bit of time talking about the law and the Israelites, how they seem to miss the boat. And in case people think that somehow now the Israelites are condemned forever, Paul's saying, God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Now, what goes on is Paul says, in the time of Elijah, a lot of the Israelites had apostatized, and Elijah felt like he was the only one left. And yet, God said, Elijah, it turns out there's actually a large group of people that still are faithful to me. Paul's trying to argue here, even if we have examples of Israelites failing over time, God still knows that this chosen people still have people who are choosing him. And they still are experiencing the blessings of God. So we have to be careful here. We can learn from the lessons of failure of other people who've had God's promises, but not to condemn them and say that they have permanently lost out or that nobody in that group ever gets anything again. So Paul is speaking to this split audience, Gentiles and Jews, trying to say all are welcome at the table of God's Holy Supper. And it's powerful how on this whole page, all of this chapter 11 is literally rooted in this analogy of you have this, this tree, the house of Israel, with the roots being Father Abraham, Mother Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Rachel, Leah, Jacob, Israel. You have all of this covenantal structure behind you, and Jewish Christians in the first century in Rome are assuming, well, 
I'm, I'm fine. I'm going to be saved because look, look at my pedigree chart. And Paul in chapter 11 is referring to Gentiles who are being grafted in from foreign trees brought into the house of Israel tree. And he's saying they're going to produce natural fruit. This connects us back to Zenos's allegory in Jacob 5. And he's saying, you can't claim that you're better branch than they are just because your family has been in here for 1,500 years or 2,000 years. The idea being, make room in the tree of the gospel for all of God's children who are willing to be grafted in and become a part. So notice he says here in verse uh, 16, for if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. So we're good at the root. But then jump down to verse 20, because of unbelief, they were broken off and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. There are people in the past who have been cut out of the tree because of unbelief and they've withered. So be careful. Don't rely on your pedigree chart to save you. In fact, isn't it a beautiful thing in the restoration of the gospel that we don't look at our pedigree chart to find salvation from them? We do research in our family tree, in our roots of our family, to try to help the Lord in the work of salvation with them on the other side of the veil. We're not trying to get things from our ancestors. Saviors on Mount Zion actually try to give things to their ancestors. And using this metaphor, in the spiritual pedigree chart, there should only be one single line, and it's us to Jesus, that we should be a child of Jesus, child of Jesus Christ. So now you go to verse um, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And then verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's a pretty good closure to that chapter. Now we come to chapter 12. And we're going to just kind of grab a, a few key verses in these remaining chapters for the sake of time. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I'll never forget a lesson that I once saw from Grant Anderson, a colleague, back when I was in seminaries and institutes. He held up a balloon. And he said, watch what happens to the balloon. And then he pushed his finger into the balloon and lo and behold, the balloon changed its shape completely. The balloon conformed to the outer pressure that was placed upon it. Keep in mind, Paul's writing this letter to a group of saints living in Rome. Oh my heavens, the outward pressures of that society and that culture to conform you to fit the shape that they have determined for you, it's intense. I wonder, I wonder if the 21st century world isn't terribly different than the first century Roman world when it comes to conformance and people trying to poke you and prod you into fitting a shape that they have predetermined for you. 
I had this experience a few, some years ago. I happened to meet another scholar from another very fine university. And when he found out that I was associated with Brigham Young University, which is sponsored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he said to me, why doesn't BYU just become like all the other universities out there? And I just thought to myself, then what would be the point? Like, if, if it's just like every other university, then there's nothing of value or distinctiveness. Like, when you go to a buffet, if it's just potatoes on every option, that is not a very good buffet. So this is what God invites us to do. He invites us to be different, which is to declare and live our full identity as his children, and then to not conform to the pressures of the world to be the children of other things. I, I love this concept. Uh, Elder Clark Gilbert, who is the, the commissioner of education for the church, for the church educational system, he wrote an incredible article called Dare to be Different in the Deseret Magazine. You could Google it and look it up. It's this idea exactly of what you're describing here of there's this outward pressure for the BYUs and for the church to just conform, just be like everybody else. And it's this incredible article, Dare to be Different, this idea of there is a richness, there is a beauty, there is a depth that comes when the BYUs maintain their religious identity rather than just becoming like all the other secular universities out there. Let's add to this one more. Um, I have a friend who just shared this with me, a man named uh, Dan Duckworth, who is involved with a group called Leading Saints, uh, helping members of the church like upgrade how we teach and learn and lead. And he said, it's interesting, if you take a typical bell curve, right? the bell curve is like most people are kind of right here in the middle, like here's normal. And in society that you have some negative deviance, people who are kind of off the end, who create problems in society. And we try to encourage those people, like don't create problems for society, right? And sometimes they go to jail. Well, what happens if you're over here and you're positively deviant? What does society want? They want you back to be normal. And this is what we're talking about. God is asking us to be positively different. And the pressure of the world is like, don't be different. Just be like everybody else. But you're going to experience in your life when you are trying to be positively different, you're going to feel deep pressure to be brought back here into the middle. So the, the wording of Paul here, don't you love this? be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the difference here. Here's our balloon that is going to conform to outward pressures that are placed upon it by the environment. That's conforming. But be ye transformed implies letting the inward forces shape you letting the Lord work in you and through you. Uh, it's, a, it's a powerful paradigm shift when you stop trying to conform to what other people expect, but when you allow the Lord to change you from the inside, you're transformed. Which now brings us down to verse uh, four. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and every one member one of another. Paul is going to pick up this motif and flesh it out, pun intended, later on with 1 Corinthians, and we're gonna cover it in much greater detail there. It's that idea of the body of Christ has many members and they're all very different. So we'll pick that one up in a, in a future lesson.
as well as the gifts that he starts to mention here in verse 6, 7, and 8. We'll cover those as well later on in, in the Corinthian letter. And he closes chapter 12 with an amazing concept, verse 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You'll notice you don't overcome evil with evil. You overcome evil with good. And there's one person who showed us the perfect example of what that actually looks like, and that's the Savior Jesus Christ. So we get to chapter 13. What you're looking for, or actually what you're listening for, is how Paul is trying to teach his people, these Christians in the Rome, in the in the world of Rome, how to live in the world but not be fully of the world. And the reality is we live in worlds full of policies and laws and different societies have different ways of doing things. And he's encouraging people, you can be good citizens. And if you're living what Christ asks you to do, you shouldn't typically have problems living the laws of the societies that you find yourself in. So we have help in this process. It's not just, okay, be good. There's actually help given to us. Verse 12, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. This is one of my favorite words in the Greek. This word, enduo, is translated as put on. In English, the enduo is to endow. And if you look up in Strong's Concordance or in a Greek dictionary, you're going to find that enduo means to, to sink into a sacred garment or to be encircled in, in a sacred clothing item. An endowment is a sacred clothing ordinance. We'll talk more about that when we get to Ephesians as well. But here, he first introduces it to us in, in, in our flow through these lessons with this idea of put on the armor of light. So you're being endowed with power in the temple of our God. What are you putting on? What is the sacred garment, the sacred clothing that we're dressing in? It's armor, and it's not just medieval metal armor, it's actually armor of light, which is the biggest defense against the chains of darkness that the devil is waging his war with. So we put on, notice in that verse, it's, and I'll spell it with the British spelling as it is in our KJV, the armor of light, and he doesn't end there. He says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, because that would be ek duo. That would be taking off our armor. We want to stay clothed, verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Did you notice this? Put on Christ. The enduo, the, the endowment of power, that entire ordinance in the temple is all rooted in and symbolized by the embodiment of Jesus Christ himself. That's why I find it interesting that there are people in our world today who are encouraging people to remove their garments, to say they're not fashionable. They, 
they're, they're oppressive. You don't want to have to wear things that other people are telling you to wear. It's taking away your freedom and your agency. We're hearing these kinds of things today. And I just have to pause and scratch my head and say, wait a minute, you're encouraging people to take off the armor of light. You're encouraging them to take off this symbolic element of Christ that we get to put on every day. We get to be enduoed every day in the garment and people are encouraging you to take it off. I, I marvel at the logic of you don't want armor. You don't want Christ. It reminds me of Hosea and Gomer. Don't wear his flax and his wool. Don't, don't take the, the covering that Hosea or in this context, Jesus Christ offers you, but go put on the clothing of your lovers, your former lovers, your former life. I, you lose power when you become unendowed in this armor of light in Christ that you have put on. So let's tie this into the story of Adam and Eve. When they are found naked in the garden, they eventually get clothed and it is being clothed by God. They get these garments and these garments are meant to be symbols of God's protecting power. And so the invitation for all of us is when we enter into covenant, it's like putting on Christ. When you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it's like an endowment in the sense that you have this presence to be with you at all time to protect you and to guide you. And isn't it beautiful that that covering, that garment originally even to Adam and Eve was made out of a coat of skins, which means an animal had to die. An innocent animal had to die in order to cover their nakedness, in order to enduo them, to, to cover them. And what a privilege to be able to enter into that covenant and take upon us the name of Christ and put on his power. Now we go to chapter 14 and just covering a couple of verses here, verse 8, for whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. If you're struggling with health, or if you're working with a loved one who's struggling with health concerns or with accidents that have happened in your family or with your loved ones recently, this is a very comforting verse to say, all is not lost if somebody dies, if they are in that relationship with the Lord. It, it's going to be okay in the end, even though it's very painful in the here and now. Look at verse um, 10. Why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, Christ is the judge. So why are we judging each other and quite frankly, judging ourselves pretty harshly sometimes as well? And then he says, for it is written, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 45. As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So he's speaking of Jesus Christ here, quoting Isaiah 45, which is referring to God of the Old Testament or Jehovah. And we take it for granted, but again, he's linking this up that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God. But it won't be a huge victory for you 
to bend the knee and confess when it's impossible to stand. Elder Maxwell taught that concept that the decision will be made for you. The trick is to bend the knee and confess with the tongue today when you aren't being forced to your knees at his coming or at your death. It's it's a choice. It's a free will offering to him. And one of the things Paul teaches here and throughout his other passages, other epistles, is unity in the Christian community. Remember, in Rome, there are very different groups of people that are trying to be Christian. And there's a lot of there's been a lot of conflict and people are debating and like, you eat differently than I do and I don't like the way you wear your clothes. We never have conversations like this today, do we? We do, unfortunately. And Paul's saying, in the end, everybody's the same. We all die. We will all have to confess Christ. If we all have to be unified in those things, why can't we choose unity now? Because if those things matter the most, why are we being divided about things that just don't matter? So let's choose unity now around what matters most and let everything else just go to the wayside. So now we go to chapter 15. I, I love this chapter. He opens it by saying, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. We go to help lift up burdens to help the people who are burdened, not to get something for ourselves. And I think that this applies to both sides of the veil, uh, our efforts to, to strengthen the weak. Verse 2, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Edification, to build up, to lift up, to strengthen, to encourage, not to tear down, not to take from them, but to, to edify them. Which now brings us to chapter 16, his closing to this letter, or his closing of this letter to the, to the Romans. And it's interesting because he opens with commending you Phoebe, commending unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church at Kentria. And then he gives greeting Priscilla and Aquila. And then he gives lots of additional names down here. And if you're not careful, you'll read the beginning two thirds of chapter 16 and think it's just a list. It's just a list of names, random people. Keep in mind to Paul, this isn't just a list. These are relationships. These are people. He loves them. He's commending them. He's saluting them. He's reestablishing a connection with them the best way he can in the first century with their technology, which is through a letter, because he can't get on a phone and, and have a Zoom call with them or a video conference with them. He's expressing his love. And I love the fact that Heavenly Father, every time he introduces the Son, he refers to him as the Beloved. This acknowledgement of your love for and your appreciation of and your regard toward people, building and strengthening those relationships, this is an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul is, is modeling for us here in his closing to the letter. This is not just a list. This is, this is relationship. This is loving your neighbor as yourself being modeled for us. And so we finish starting in verse 19. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. So he's saying people know in this Mediterranean region, they've heard in Rome, you're doing a really good job. 
this is a strong branch of the church, but be careful. Verse 20, it says, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, amen. You'll notice the Greek word there for bruise, if you go down to the footnote 20b, it says, uh, break the power of or crush. So the God of peace shall crush Satan under your feet. It's pretty powerful imagery that the Lord is going to use you to help push back that darkness as he endows us with that armor of light we are more able to crush under our feet to overcome the works of darkness that are trying to spread and prevail and, and wreak havoc in your family, in your neighborhood, in your ward, in your stake, and in our world, that we don't need to be a victim of this. And then he finishes verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And let's jump down to verse 27 and finish with him saying, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Do you find that interesting? That it's to God be glory through Jesus Christ? Well, guess what? The only way you and I are ever going to hope to receive any glory is coming from God through Jesus Christ the other direction. The Savior, Jesus Christ, really is the mediator, the intercessor, the go-between. He's the advocate, and he's the go-between both directions. We can do nothing without him, but we can do everything through him and by him and with him. And that is our testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.